Well, hello there, Donk Donkersons and Rick Rickersons. I realized immediately I should not have worn a black shirt. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, hello, everyone. It is Wednesday, the 13th of December, 2017, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I very much appreciate it. Uh, we'll go for about a little under 90 minutes today talking about the latest and greatest in mixed martial arts and combat sports and beyond. Best place to get your questions in, of course, as you probably already know from doing this a number of times, is in the comment section where this window is embedded on MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green get priority, but not necessarily exclusivity. Um, yeah, so subscribe to MMA Fighting below. We, we've got a bunch of coverage coming at you this week for UFC Winnipeg. Tons of good stuff. There's going to be an MMA beat this week. There's going to be a lot of good stuff. So um, please subscribe, like this video, and uh, and um, I'd be very much appreciative. Speaking of appreciative, look what I've got here, huh? I got the new chair. I got the new chair. Remember, I didn't really ask for any money at all, but some of you just put some together anyway, um, which I really appreciate. Quite generous of all of you, even if it was a dollar or five. That's more than I needed or asked for. Uh, and I got a chair. I threw in a little bit on top to get a nicer one that would last me a little while. You can see Harvey the Dent is here as well. But uh, I got one of these bucket chairs that gamers use, and it's the DX Racer, I don't know, Classic or King or whatever, big enough for a donk my size. So, um, yeah, it's great. It's like literally the nicest chair I've ever sat in. And you could sit in it for hours. You know my other one used to sink during the live chat, and I don't have to, like, bring it up. This one is... Uh, the spring mounts are a little bit are a little bit sturdier. So, um, so thank you. So thank you very much. It's been a very nice adjustment having this up here. Okay, with that out of the way, let us get to the show. Uh, yeah, someone says, yeah. Danny goes, looks like you're about to stream on Twitch. Yeah, I know it feels like it too. You can actually remove this, I think. Yeah, so you can take that out, but I have it because it's nice for your head. It's a nice chair. It's a really nice chair. Look at that. All right. Let's get this going if we can. Poor favor. All right. Oh, and of course, last 15 minutes, I go on Twitter. You can tweet me at LThomasNews, and I will get to you there. It actually changes the camera angle for me a little bit. I kind of have to back up, so i got to readjust some things here in my home office, and I'll be readjusting them over the next while but one of the things i got to fix is number one i got to fix this back but number two actually the chair changes the camera angle because i don't have to lean as much i can actually sit back and even then i'm still barely in the frame so i gotta go back some to make this work a little bit better but then i gotta change my mic setup so there's a lot of things that have to get fixed but one thing at a time all right let's do this immediate rematches hi luke great monday morning analyst this week thank you very much i really appreciate that it's the first thing this person writes on the first comment. Yay. Uh, watching it got me thinking, though. From what you were saying, am I right in thinking that you believe between two fights that Max actually made more adjustments as opposed to Aldo, even though he won the first fight? You were saying that six months generally isn't enough time for the loser of the first fight to make enough adjustments and would probably be better off taking a fight or two in the interim. And you referenced the one I mentioned, Katora Liddell. Yep. But then I was thinking about Nate versus Connor, too. In hindsight, does that make what Connor did in the second fight any more impressive considering he only had six months to make the necessary adjustments? Or was it more down to Nate winning the first fight, thinking he had Connor's number and not really changing his approach for the second fight, making it easier for Connor and his game and his team to game plan for it? What a great question. Uh, also, in a related question, what would you think if Joanna got a rematch, uh, immediate rematch, 
And who do you think would make the better adjustments, Joanna or Rose? Well, that's an interesting one because Rose had made, as we mentioned, those accumulative adjustments over time. So that by the time she got that title shot, it appeared after the fact anyway, that she had uh, so many new tricks that she was able to bring them out and bring them to bear. Plus, I don't think Trevor Whitman gets nearly enough credit for being an incredible coach, uh, cornerman, and strategic thinker in combat sports. A guy, of course, who's done some coaching and cornering at the high, at a very high level in boxing. Um, I tried to interview him, and he was so friendly. I've told you this before, but if this is the first time you're hearing this, he just doesn't want to do interviews anymore, but he was very, very friendly. But I'm still going gonna, gonna to keep swinging that axe with Trevor because I'm going to imagine that if I could get him to open up, there would be a potential gold mine of information therein so we'll see how that goes but to, to answer your question about Joanna, i would think she would have a lot of adjustments usually the loser has more adjustments to, to make the problem is it's that in that short period of time more often than not now not always but more often than not the reason why they lost is because there's some kind of major gap major gap that gets exposed and six months is typically not enough time to close it or surpass it right that's historically been the case but exceptions abound. You're noting Connor versus Nate. This is a great example. You have to really ask yourself, what were the conditions that established Nate winning in the first, and what are those different from in the second? A couple of things. One, I think he had a better adjustment, Connor did, about his weight. It looked like he had had a very nonchalant attitude about the precision of his, you know, what was it, body-to-fat ratio, or, um, you know, maybe he changed his metabolic conditioning and training, or something but he clearly managed the size better in the second fight a lot of times that's not going to be available to you because you're probably competing in your natural weight class really how many adjustments can you make you could probably do more cardio eat better something like that but that is an unusual circumstance that connor nate uh, had where there was a lot of ground to cover in terms of how that weight was managed because Less so in the case of Nate, but certainly in the case of Connor, we can agree that's not his natural weight class, probably not his naturally best weight class anyway. Uh, now, you can also argue that, hey, Nate Diaz was taking shots on a boat 10 days earlier. Fair enough. Uh, but he is a guy who had a lot of experience at 170. I think he fits at 170 not great. He's 3-3 three and three historically at 170. Um, you know, winning a loss coming to Connor. But it's a little bit easier for him to get up there and manage the size and, and scope of those battles in those weight classes. So I think that was one major adjustment that is unusual that you're typically not able to make. Certainly you're not able to make it in the Aldo Holloway case. In fact, if anything, they both really struggle to get down there, Aldo in particular. So that avenue is now cut off. And I think more importantly, you know, there was this really, like he looked, I mean, go back and watch the first fight. Connor looked really good in the first round. He won that cleanly. Um, you know, and was and was doing excellent work, and then there was this incredible drop off after the second, in part related to how he managed the weight and the training related to that weight, and another part in terms of just the overall strategy of what to pursue, individual tactics. If you look at the second fight, there's not a dramatic shift in tactics. There are some things that change, of course. No two fights are identical, but it wasn't really a dramatic shift. It was more of a how do we apportion our energy per period. Uh, and what kind of shot selection and attacks and defense do we want to employ to maximize um, output without you know, drawing the bank account dry or empty or something like that? It was, it was more of an apportionment issue than it was you know, a strategical thinking or I should say strategic thinking about how do we, how do we, how do we go in a different direction? Because 
nine times out of ten, if a guy loses, like Aldo lost the first time. Did he lose based on cardio? I'm sure he was somewhat drained based on the weight cut, but that is no more unusual than any of his other featherweight fights. It wasn't a dramatically different degree. Um, so that's really not available to you. So did he did he lose based on the apportionment of energy to an extent? Again, you know, Max really makes you work. And then remember, he would make him cut angles like this, and then he would change angles at the other end to catch him. That's sort of what he was doing. So, so there's that as well. But um, historically, what you're looking at is I can't really do a lot about the size. I can't really do a lot about the weight. I can't really do a whole lot about the cut. Again, some things at the margins, sure. What you're commonly faced with is tactically, how do I fix this? Tactically and strategically, what is really different that I can do in approaching this a second time? And as you can just imagine, six months, if that's really your only recourse against a very elite fighter, is just so very difficult. Now, Max is even more of a special case on top of that. Max is even more of a special case on top of that because he's got this modular game where he can uh, he can create one modality of fighting, and then we, we talked about the directions, and he can create another completely different context for this. That is very unusual. That is very, very unusual. Guys can switch stances, and they can fight certain portions of a round like this. Max Holloway can just be a different guy fight to fight. That is, I mean... That's just a mountain too high to climb for, I think, for six months, even for a guy as exceptionally talented as Jose Aldo. And I think it'd be true. Let's say he fights Frankie Edgar. He beats him in a similar way. I just don't know what Frankie could do a second time short of if he was really able to establish the takedown, if he was really able to be just a inside fighting threat. A lot of Max's changes in terms of the modular changes, the modalities anyway, they are uh, at distance. They're striking. Um, he might be a little bit more one note on the ground, but his takedown defense is excellent. So what are you going to do about that? So you can see what I'm talking about. Um, now, the question is, does it make Connors change? Oops, is there an issue? Uh-oh. My, all of a sudden, my chats are blowing up. Oh, people are, Guillermo Cruz is blowing up my chats to hate on me about Real Madrid. I see you, Guillermo. I see you. Blowing up my chat, blowing up my G chat during my live chat just to hate on me. I'm going to get you for that. Um, anyway, does it make what he did impressive? Yeah, I think it does make what he did pretty impressive. I mean, one, to get a win after you got finished in the first one is impressive and i think too we all we've often talked about that fourth round against nate diaz boy that was a real gut check moment for him uh for conor mcgregor so coming out like that uh and winning the way he did yeah yeah he look it proved he could make a um some again some strategic adjustment i don't want to say that's not part of it but it's not the biggest part of it but it, it showed he could make a mature overall performance especially coming off of a loss, and I think that's really important. The only thing I will say about this is I cannot tell you how many emails I get from Conor McGregor fans who think he's doing things that he's not doing, and then he's not getting credit for them. Let me give you an example, and I mentioned uh, – I, I, actually, I never mentioned this before. I had a, a guy write me, very nice guy. I'm not mad at these guys, but they need to be very careful what they're saying. And this doesn't happen with any other fighter, including Ronda or anybody else, or even John Jones or something. Um, there's this constant uh, – feel among conor mcgregor's fans the hardcore ones not the more casual ones and they're not bad people but 
they feel like he's not getting his due tactically, and I really don't understand that. So a guy wrote me being like, you know, hey, all the things you said Max can do where he can go one side, one side, you know, stance, stance, and have these completely different sets of offenses in either case and defenses as well. Um, you know, Connor was doing that in all these other fights. And then you go back and look at those fights. Connor wasn't doing any of that. You know, Max was circling in, let's say for UFC 218, was circling from the right-handed position into his own left to smother the hip, right? So he didn't fight Lamas that way. He didn't fight Swanson that way. He did fight Jose Aldo uh, this way, but went that direction, right? So these totally different universes almost. Um, and he was like, Connor did that. Connor didn't do any of that. Now, Connor did something else that was really impressive. He was cage cutting and corralling uh, all of his opponents. He likes to be the guy at the center position and he doesn't like to rotate. But imagine Connor was pushing into Chad Mendez in one direction consistently, where he was going in a circular motion inside the cage on one axis. So he's going like this while his whole trajectory goes like that. So it's two ro different rotations in that, where uh, in the case of Holloway, he would show his back to the fence as he rotated in a circular direction as he rotated around the cage. Connor doesn't do any of that. It's not to say he's not impressive in his own choice of offense. That's just the way he likes to compete. He likes to back guys up behind the two black lines. He likes to corral them. He likes to get them to go certain directions. He likes to force certain kinds of offense out of them. And then he has these incredible counters. You know, on Nate Diaz, he'd have the inside slip, and he'd come over with the left, kept cracking them. Of course, he gets guys to turn, hits them with a spinning back kick. He's got a lot of different things he does, but he doesn't do what Max does. Now, in the end, you can say which one's better if you want, and that's a different debate, but you can't say that like that Connor was doing all those same things before Max because it's not true. They don't fight the same way, at least not in that respect. Uh, now, eventually, when Aldo got tired, then you see Max begin to cage cut at the very, very, very end where he stands there and doesn't let Aldo out of this corner. And then usually the last two contests anyway, he just closes the show from there. So, so just some just some notes there, like. We have to not. We have to be careful to not deny Connor certain things, but we can't. I cannot tell you how many times I get notes being like, "Hey, Connor did all that," and you go and look, and Connor didn't do any of that. I don't know why his. There's a portion of his fan base that is very certain he's not getting his credit, but whatever. He's a great fighter, and he's obviously doing quite well. Okay, uh, GSP's credibility. This is a fun question. With all the discussion taking place regarding GSP's decision to vacate the title, I'd like to know what your thoughts are. The MMA community seem to be in disagreement on this issue. Yes, they do. A lot of people have been quick to criticize GSP for what they believe to be a deliberate plan of snatching the title and making history against the easier, excuse me, against the easiest opponent possible. Also, one in a different weight class because um, let's assume that Tyron Woodley and Michael Bisping, this may not be the case, but let's just assume that they're equally beatable. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that they're not, but let's just say that they were. Bisping would still probably be the more attractive contest because it would now put him in that company of the guy, the four who have titles in two weight classes. Now, GSP, Connor, Penn, and Couture. Others believe that, that he would have returned to fight at middleweight regardless of who the champion was at the time. And furthermore, that he is doing the right thing, vacating the title and not holding up the division while he's unable to defend the belt. Do you believe that GSP was intending to embark on a new career at middleweight? I don't. And that his health issues surrounding a weight gain have forced him to vacate? Probably true. Or do you think that there was a more sinister plan at play from the beginning? And then he puts some word. I don't know what that is. Can a Fossenden? The hell is that? Is this some Game of Thrones thing? Oh, it's just a dude's name. 
I guess. All right. Um, so, good question. Um, I guess there's a few things to say about this one. There's really, as I mentioned in my in my wrap-up video, or not wrap-up, I'm sorry, my immediate reaction video here on MMA Fighting, um, there's really two schools of thought about this. And you have to decide for yourself which school of thought you belong to. And I hate to say I'm somewhere in the middle, but I guess I kind of am. Uh, although I lean a certain direction more than the other one. But basically, you have to decide whether or not you think that this was, that 217 was a magical night, that it really is not a big deal in terms of the divisions, that this will cause any substantive damage or any long-term lasting damage around a title. Um, and that, look how great it was with the pay-per-view returns, look how great it was in terms of just the, you know the historic nature of it all. And yeah, this wasn't an ideal following of the protocol, but the protocol can be kind of boring and stayed, and why follow it if you don't get nights like that, right? That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, yeah, sure, pay-per-view returns were great, and uh, gate receipts were great, but this is all short-term thinking while you're doing long-term damage to a division and long-term damage to the nature of a UFC belt. More and more, you're showing that you need a belt for apparently every pay-per-view, but that's not really possible, and so you're getting this constant devalued nature of... Um, the belt. Now, this is a somewhat separate issue from that, but the point being is um, this totally devalues the middleweight belt. It robs, you know, everyone's like, well, Michael Bisping got a big payday at the end of his career. That's true. But you robbed Peter to pay Paul because now you robbed Robert Whitaker of a big payday. And you can say, well, Robert Whitaker's what, 26 or something? And Michael Bisping's got like literally one fight left. Sure, that's true as well. Um, but you don't actually know if Whitaker's going to get a big fight. For the rest of his career, you're assuming that's the case because of his. There's no guarantee whatsoever. It's just a guess. That's all it really is. It's just a guess that eh, it'll eventually work itself out. But Michael Bisping's 35 and it never worked himself itself out. Now Whitaker advanced further in his career. I'm just pointing out that this notion that like, oh, well, rights will be wrong for Whitaker over time. That's just a guess. You don't really know that at all. There's no guarantee that's true. And if he loses to Rockhold, the whole thing gets blown up. So. Um, there's a, there's definitely a robbing of a Peter to pay Paul scenario there where it's, there, there's no real clarity about that. And more importantly, you have to ask yourself long-term, what kind of damage this thing does, you know, when somebody does this, when they come in out of nowhere, they beat a champ who wasn't defending in the proper linear path and they, they win, then they just immediately get rid of it. And there's this alternate path of contenders that now have to rise out of the ashes of this with no real relation or um, connection to the more celebrated, which is what that was, version of the title. There's all kinds of problems that cause. I mean, in the end, we're going to have to see what the long-term consequences of this thing. One of the things I would very much caution everybody to consider is that there's a lot of problems that are slow to reveal themselves in MMA. There's a lot of problems that there. people think that when someone tries something, in terms of some kind of strategic business vision, that the merits of it will immediately make themselves available. And in some cases, that's true. In this one, let's say the pay-per-view buy rate was really good for UFC 217. It was great. Um, the gate receipt, third all-time in Madison Square Garden. Hey, you're doing something right in that sense. Um, but I would go back to this oversaturation debate. I don't know how you can argue that we need 26 Bellator shows a year. I don't know how you could possibly argue that we don't have too many UFC fighters and too many UFC fights. You look at what's happening with Ultimate Fighter 26. I mean, you cannot tell me that's not superfluous content. 
uh, if, if what you're trying to do is maintain some kind of product integrity, some product, when I say homogeneity, I mean homogeneity of quality. I mean, you're clearly, clearly affecting that. And the alarm bells were, were uh, rung about this years ago before it was immediately clear. There were certain trend lines, but like it was hard to make the argument because what you were talking about was things that were set in motion, but not properly actualized. And I wonder, I don't know, and I legitimately am telling you this, I don't know what the answer is here. But my concern, such that I have any, is that what we've done is set in motion something where the bill for this is going to come due later, right? You get the you get you get to you get to enjoy the benefits of this right up front. They're right there. You get the great pay per view. You get the historic night. You get the return of GSP. You get all this stuff, and that feels like well, this is so great. What could uh, possibly be the problem with this? We'll see what happens in the end. You know, I don't really know, but I've seen. I feel like I've seen this play out before. You know, where the costs of something are kicked down the the road, uh, and then when the bill comes due, everyone's like, "Well, how did we get here? We got here by not maintaining some discipline about the protocol. We got here by not by overestimating um, the short term value and the long term costs." So the answer is, I guess we're going to have to see. I guess we're going to have to see. My hope is that, look, my thought is that no matter what, it did some damage. The question is whether or not the damage is relatively negligible, in which case, no big deal, or that the damage is substantive in accordance with all the other th ways in which the UFC title is being devalued over time. And in aggregate, those can be incredibly powerful forces. I really think we need to stop with the weight classes. This is too much. This is way too much. Before, I was like, eh, what's the harm in adding 165? It won't solve weight cutting issues, but it might help a little bit. You know, no big deal. No, stop. Stop. No more. This is not good for business. This is not good for the consumer. This is not good for the product. Certainly not now. If however many months, days, years down the road, we see that the, that the UFC is teeming with talent that really need a place to go, okay. You know, we can make that choice down there. But I, I am I'm calling for enough of this. Enough of interim titles, if we can avoid it. Enough of additional weight classes. This is clearly and unequivocally watering down the product to a degree that is making it partly unpalatable. Now, Bellator's got a separate problem going on, on Spike. But they're literally hitting, and I'm not exaggerating this, all-time lows. All-time lows. Scott Goker, I think... Excuse me, he's an adept promoter and a very smart guy. And I'm sure there's a method to his madness in all of this, but they can't be happy about that. And if that was Bjorn Rebney pulling in 394, I mean, 394,000, that's what the post fight show for UFC Fresno got on Fox Sports One of all places. I mean, that is an abysmal, unforgivably bad number. Unforgivably bad number. Um, if that was Bjorn Rebney, we'd be raking him over the coals. Scott Coker has this halo of strike force, which in many ways is very, very deserved. I do think he's very smart, and I do think in general he knows what he's doing, certainly more so than many of us, but uh, it's going to be hard to justify that one. It's going to be hard to justify that one. They went from 16 shows in 2015, zero in Europe. I think they did like five shows, four shows, five shows in 2015 in Europe. And I think they did 22 overall shows, maybe 21. They did 26 shows this year. And I think they had, 
let me look. I actually counted this morning because I just couldn't believe it. Where is my note about this? Oh, here we go. 27, 2015, zero shows in Europe. 2016, they went 152, 158, built for kickboxing three. 164 was in Israel. I count that more. Uh, I think technically that's a, an Asian um, country. It might be culturally connected to Europe, but it's in technically it's in the Asian continent, which you could also say about Turkey, but Istanbul is split down the middle between Europe and Asia. It's weird like that, but anyway. Um, 168 and 169. So 152, 158, kickboxing three, not counting 164, 168, 169. Five times in 2016, they went to Europe. 173, 176, 177, 179, 187, 188, and one counts in Israel, 190, 191. Seven times they went to Europe. All right, yeah, Europe in this past year. This is too much. This is too much. So my point being is about this baked-in nature of things. We make these decisions that have these really short-term benefits, which are right up in our face, and we say, well, this must be the prevailing wisdom. And then down the road, we have these problems that we have to encounter later on and then figure out what we're going to do about. But We'll have to see about this one. All right. Uh, I don't know why y'all care so much, but here we go. Luke is a dedicated listener. I know you have a background in the military as a Marine. That's true. Are a black belt in BJJ? I am definitely not. Not even close. And now mainly do weightlifting and powerlifting. I do not do Olympic lifts, although I'm looking into it now. Um, because Olymp you can teach yourself for the most part how to deadlift. You can certainly teach yourself how to bench. And you can teach yourself how to squat. That doesn't to say that you won't make mistakes or even bad mistakes doing it or that you couldn't really benefit from a coach. You absolutely could. In fact, I would recommend getting a coach for any of those lifts. But there is some degree of self-teaching that is available there. And that's true to an extent about the snatch and the clean and jerk. But those lifts are way, way more technical. You really need a coach for that. And it takes a, it takes a while to learn how to do those. Um, which I'm guessing is geared around compound movements and lifts. Yes, compound movements or any kind of lift where um, you know multiple muscle groups are being worked at the same time. So if you do a deadlift, you've got your lats engaged, your grip is being worked, particularly if you're using hook grip. Um, let's see, what else is being worked? Your upper back tightness is being worked, your entire posterior chain, your hamstrings, your glutes, to an extent your quads, I guess, it, depending on how you do it. But uh, yeah, all that is being worked. All that is being worked. Um, so that's, that is a compound movement. What I would like to know is what is your overall background in martial arts? I am just a guy who shows up. What disciplines and how long have you trained or competed in boxing or anything else? F no. Have you competed in BJJ? Not one time. Did you enjoy the PT elements of the military? Um, I enjoyed the I enjoyed uh, everything but running. I hated running. And what is your usual training schedule like? Given that now you're a busy journalist and broadcaster, your Monday morning analyst videos are expertly put together and are perfect for novices like myself, but also gain solid attention from decorated pros like Max Holloway. Yes, which I can't believe, but it's true. So you're obviously very knowledgeable at what you cover. Thank you very much. Thank you for your content. Well, it's very nice of you to say, look, man, I'm nobody special. Let me just tell you right now, I'm not anybody special. I am, I am, I, I'm larger than most people, right? But uh, I'm just an average guy in every way when it comes to anything athletic. Any kind of progress I've made, any kind of size I've put on the weight room, any kind of skills I've picked up in the gym are just from showing up day after day after day after day after day. That is it. And there's really nothing else to it. In fact, I think the fact that I'm so average at all this stuff uh, has benefited me 
because I've been to a lot of gyms. This is true for weightlifting as much as it is for wrestling, as much as it is for striking, as much as it is for jujitsu. What I have found is you'll get a lot of guys who are trainers and they have these incredible resumes, right? Like uh, so-and-so was an Olympian or whatever. I have found that this is not often true. And I don't, I was going to say not always true, but it's often true that those guys are actually not great teachers. And the reason why Keenan Cornelius would be, would be an, uh, you know, the exception that proves the rule because he's an excellent teacher and he's a high level competitor. But, um, everything comes so naturally to them that they don't really have to think about it in order to put everything together. They're just there. Uh, Mike Easton used to remind me of that. You know, Mike Easton was, I mean, look, I know he didn't have the most successful, um, UFC career. I'm not even sure what happened to his MMA career after the UFC, but I remember watching him in the gym. People would teach him something. He'd just get it immediately. Like immediately it would come to him. And, you know, I'd be looking at this being like, okay, how's this work now? You know, just trying to break it down because it just, none of that stuff ever came to me easy. None of it, not, not, not one bit. Um, and so I had to think about it and consider it and like look for cues and create setups and like create a process in my mind. And as a consequence, it enabled me, um, you know, to be able to do something like the Monday Morning Analyst podcast, which again, let me be clear about this. It's not for experts. It's just for people who maybe are totally, totally unfamiliar with the game. I can impart a little bit of something to that. Um, but I'm just an average guy. I'm just an average guy. I cannot present myself as anything other than just an average dude. The only difference is I've just spent a lot of time uh, in gyms. I spent a lot of times in in martial arts gyms. I spent a lot of time listening, reading, watching tape, talking to people. You know, you watch tape for 10 years, you train for 10 years, you you go to watch tournaments for 10 years, you watch competition for 10 years uh, or more, uh, and you just begin to accrue a certain set of wisdom, um, you know, limited, it's limited in its own right, but a certain set of wisdom to be able to begin to draw some conclusions. You know, you need to think about martial arts like a language, right? I know fighters always want to say you're either fluent or you're not fluent. Well, I guess, yeah, relative to competition needs, if you're not fluent, you shouldn't be in there. But I'm not trying to compete. And you go to a lot of jiu-jitsu gyms and you go to a lot of weightlifting gyms, like Olympic weightlifting gyms, like CrossFit gyms, and they're constantly asking people to compete. And competing is a big part of self-improvement. Most people will tell you you'll get better faster if you compete, but I have no interest, man. I'm just, I have zero, like, it's like, I don't want to demean people who compete because number one, I think they're right. It does get you better faster. And if that's the way you want to live your life, that's my, my way of living is no better, probably worse in fact. Um, but to me, it's like, here's two accountants, you know, grip fighting. It's like, this is how you want to spend your Saturdays. You know, um, to me, to me, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that. I'd rather have other things I'd rather pursue. I'd rather have a wider array, array of interests. I don't want to live my life around competing and a lot of a lot of jujitsu schools force you to do that and a lot of weightlifting gyms really want to get you in there and they're probably right that it does make you better faster but for me no interest i'm just a guy who wants to learn as much as possible i want to get i don't i don't want to be the best at anything i just want to be good i don't have super high driven needs about it i want to play the levels that's what i want to do i don't want to be a lomachenko in something i'd rather be you know, and I'm not anything close to this, of course. I'm not even a pimple on the ass. But you know how Demetrius is good at a lot of different things. I'd rather just be good at a lot of different things if I if if in fact I can be. And that's it. Now you're asking me about my current training regimen. I don't train jujitsu at all right now. There's some projects at home I'm working on. Um, 
but I, I hope to change that in the new year. I'm going to be one of those new year losers who shows up after not coming around for a while. Um, but currently I'm in the gym weightlifting about four days a week. I want a four day a week program, my training split. It's a bit of a bro split for now because I'm doing so much hypertrophy work, which means I need more volume. Um, and so because of that, I just bro split it up and a bro split would be like, Oh, a bro split is like, Oh, I got chest day today. You should never do that. You should always split up. Like, you know, if you're going to do like say 20 to 22, 24 sets of chest a week, you should do like 12 on one day and then split the rest on another day. That's the more optimal way to do it. But I don't have the, the time. I don't have a good program for that right now. And because of the volume work, I, I, I prefer to segment it out. But in any case, let this be a lesson to you. Let this be a lesson to you. Just show up. Just You don't have to be anything special. I am not super far from it. Just be a guy who goes in there and just learn what you can, and you will be surprised over time about what begins to occur to you. That's it, y'all. No more, no less. My, anything, anything I know is just a function of hard work. Never came easy. It never will. Just work. Just work. All right. The end of the Aldo lightweight, wait, the end of Aldo dash lightweight, a no-go. All right. Let's see here. What is Danny saying? Danny, are you bothering me? Two, I got, I got two donkeys. Two donkeys from the MMA fighting staff who are taking time out to hate on me about Real Madrid because I guess they're playing Al Jazeera, some team called Al Jazeera. Y'all are some haters. Haters. All right. Luke, the result, uh, excuse me, the result in the featherweight title fight a couple of Saturdays ago proved that either Jose will never be good enough or he had no or he had what? Or he had not given himself enough time to improve. Either way, it was a bad idea to jump straight back in. Now featherweight seems to be redundant for one time for for the one time ruler. What I can't understand is the appetite for Aldo to go to lightweight. Really? He is already a small featherweight. No, he is not. When compared to Holloway and McGregor, when he fought at featherweight, and when you consider lightweight has some guys like Vic, Ferguson, Habib, then this seems like a bad idea for Aldo. I don't see him getting in the top 15 at present. Aldo, excuse me, Holloway did not respect Aldo's punching power, so he would have even less of an effect on the monsters in the lightweight division. Is it time for Aldo to call it a day as he has little to no chance of encountering a strap again? Well, I think this is a lot of assumptions that are not necessarily quite fair. Number one, he is not a small featherweight. He's a large featherweight, if anything. He might be a medium, small-ish lightweight, but he wouldn't be a tiny lightweight, not by any stretch of the imagination. I've seen Aldo in person very close. He's not not small. And you're like, well, he's smaller than McGregor. You mean the guy who can't make 145 anymore? Or Holloway, the guy who probably isn't going to make 145 for much longer? Yeah, yeah, compared to those guys, maybe he is a little bit smaller in frame. Moreover, again, it's about that adjustment. It may seem like 10 pounds, but if you have 10 pounds to play with, how do you apportion it, right? Do you add seven pounds of muscle, lean mass? That's a lot. Moreover, if he's not, even if he's not as big as you say he is, his punchy power might actually improve if he goes up a weight class and isn't drained, and certainly he might also have a speed advantage. Uh, and against some of these guys, he might have a style advantage. If he can really thwart the takedown, of Habib Nurmagomedov, which I don't think is a crazy thought. I mean, Gray Maynard, before he had a career slump, was training at Nova Uniao, and he was saying, uh, this dude's impossible to take down. He was always a big, strong lightweight. Um, 
Now that's you know, Gray Maynard is not the same as Habib Nurmagomedov. I'm not here to suggest the two are identical, but there's a lot of reasons to think he could be successful at lightweight. Now, can he be a title contender at lightweight? I don't. I think that's probably a bridge too far. But can he win big fights over there? Can he do good work? Yeah, probably. He's only 31 years old. I think he's a bit long in the tooth for 31. Um, but yeah, he's he's got. It, it's at least an intriguing question. Um, there's no guarantees, of course, but seems to me that there's plenty of optimism for him at lightweight. But I recognize that it's a tough division. You know, he's got his work cut out for him. Yeah, someone says here, in what world is Aldo a small featherweight? I completely agree. I don't buy that at all. Someone says, just because he struggles to make weight doesn't mean he is a big featherweight. That's exactly what it means. He doesn't come in there with a lot of fat on him. That could be discipline issues. He look like he have a, Does he look like he has an undisciplined diet to you? He's five foot seven and not particularly huge. Yes, he is. Compare that to Tony Ferguson, Habib, James Vick, Kevin Lee, Connor, Nate Diaz, and Gaethje. Okay, I will. Tony Ferguson walks around at 200 pounds. He's a little bit big for the weight class. He cuts a lot. He's just good at cutting it. Habib, James Vick, same thing as Tony Ferguson. Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee has had his own issues as well. Connor, we'll see. Nate Diaz, fine. And Gaethje. Gaethje's not a particularly huge lightweight. Um, and Frankie was never a particularly huge lightweight, and he was a champion. So, again, I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing you he'll have success, but I think there's plenty of reason to think that a move up there could be could be beneficial. Besides, from a promotional standpoint, featherweight's a dead end for him. You know, it's just you you lost to the guy twice. That's it for you there. You know, I mean, unless he, I don't know, retires or has some kind of traumatic injury. And even then, does the UFC really want to go back to you? Like, that's it. The show's closed. So it says Aldo versus Pettis at 155 can happen. I would agree. Would also like to see Cerrone versus Aldo at 155. Sure. Would love that fight. Aldo versus Barboza would be a sick fight. Agreed. Aldo, someone says, my two cents. Aldo is just too small to have sustained success against the elites at 155. That might be true. Sustained success against the very best. Might be a bridge too far. Guys like Ferguson, Gaethje, and Cowboy would absolutely tower over him. Habib versus Aldo on the ground, that would be absurd. Well, no one gets Aldo to the ground hardly unless they hurt them. And I don't know how Habib would hurt him on the feet. So let's, that, that would be an interesting contest. And let's see how Habib does against Barboza, too. So it says, not saying Aldo couldn't get a win here or there, depending on the matchup, but I'd hate his chances against any of the above. Fair enough. This is weird. Fight and fighter of the year with two UFC cards. Here goes Danny Segura hating again. Yeah, Aldo. Oh, no, he's not. Aldo versus Pettis 155. Yeah, it'd be super awesome. All right, look, with what? Uh, with two UFC cards and one Bellator card before the end of the year, who are your picks for fight and fighter of the year so far? With the caveat of potential fight results still to come tomorrow. This person would say Gaethje Johnson, Alvarez Gaethje, Medeiros Cowboy Oliveira for fight of the year. Just some brawls? I don't know. Fighter of the year is a tougher prospect, but I would say it was between Holloway, DJ Whitaker, and Rose. Hmm. Rose, I would say no, even though that win was tremendous. DJ saying the record's a pretty big deal, but him and how many times? Let me see something here just before I clarify something. 
Yeah, he only fought twice in 2016 and twice in 2017, Demetrius Johnson. So definitely what he did was beyond impressive, but I would like to have seen three. You know, Cody Garbrandt was fighter of the year, but he had four fights in a year. That's different. He went unranked champion. But um, Someone says, how about McGregor again? I know that he was only 0-1 in boxing, but a lot of people had him as fighter of the year last year, and he was only 2-1 in MMA. Well, he was... Some had him as fighter of the year because he did something that no one else had done in MMA before, or at least in UFC before, um, where he, be, he held two titles at the same time in two different weight classes. Now, Dan Henderson did that in pride, um, but in UFC, no one had ever done that. And so there was something kind of magical about that, but I did not. I don't think I had him as fighter of the year. Like I don't really remember who I had. The thing about the Gaethje fights and the Cowboy fights is like, who doesn't love them? I really feel like there should be a difference between Brawl of the Year and Fight of the Year because it just ends up happening that Brawls, people think, are the best fights, but I don't, I don't really believe that. Like, at the end of the day, who doesn't love a Brawl? I mean, who doesn't love what Yancey Medeiros and Cowboy did? Everybody loves that. Who doesn't love what Brian Stan and Vanderlei Silva did? Everybody loves that. It's awesome. It's great. Like, who doesn't love it? But that's really the best fight all year. I don't know. It feels to me like a fight should have major stakes. It feels to me like a fight should have, yes, ebbs and flows and momentum. It should have, you know, drama. Uh, and all those fights kind of have some of that stuff, but it also is just a lot of offense. There's no defense ever. And defense doesn't necessarily have to mean boring. It can just mean, um, you know, enough to keep it going. And sometimes the defense adds to the drama, you know. So I don't know. I have to go back and think about it a little bit. You know, give give me some time on this one, but um, but I'm a little, I'm a personally a little bit hesitant to give brawls always fight of the year. They're the most fun fights of the year. They're the best brawls of the year, but I think we should reward technical proficiency a little bit more than we do when we consider fight fighter. Excuse me, fight of the year because we award technical proficiency when we award all the other ones. Submission of the year, we're awarding technical proficiency. Fighter of the year. You're awarding accomplishment through technical proficiency. And then fight of the year, we're just picking brawls. I mean, there was not, there's not technical proficiency in that, but not as much as there are in other many other cases. One says knockout of the year. This person has Barbosa's flying knee KO, KO of Dariush. God, that was brutal. Paul Daly's flying knee KO of Brendan Ward, also brutal. Paul Daly with a spinning back fist and punches KO of Larkin. I wouldn't put that on the list, but it was certainly very great. Dillashaw KO over Garbrandt, that's a big one. Holmes question mark kick of uh, Kohea. Yeah, sure. That's a good one. You have to add in Enganu's KO of Overeem. <laughs> that was ridiculous. Um, so there's been a couple of good ones for sure. So it says on the flip side, has Don Cerrone been the biggest loser this year? One fight away from a title shot at a weight class above and instead turns in three fights, three losses, two via stoppage. Wasn't his best year. Or are we still giving that title to John Jones? You can't give it to John Jones yet because... We still don't actually know what's happening with him. I keep contacting Howard Jacobs, who is one of his attorneys, uh, a famous attorney who uh, defends fighters in anti-doping cases. And they keep saying, give us two weeks and get back to us. Then we wait two weeks and go back. Like, give us two weeks and get back to us. So I don't really know what that means, other than they clearly feel like they have more work to do before they're ready to talk. But, uh, yeah. So it could still be the case that he is, you need to at least entertain the possibility that he could be in some way exonerated. I find, I find total exoneration probably unlikely, but um, 
if he's only out another year retroactive to his last one, you know, was he really the biggest loser? I mean, performing the way he did at 214 was pretty epic. It wouldn't be the top of my list. But certainly you could make a, a larger, you know, if it's two years, that would be really bad. If it's three or four, I mean, it's catastrophic. And um, if you want to look at the larger body of missteps he's had, then, yeah, it would be, you know, a top contender for a guy who has mismanaged his career. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Oh, God. Here we go. I knew this was inevitable. I knew this was inevitable. There are talks about Manny Pacquiao. Ferguson is out for a while with the elbow surgery, right? GSP vacates his middleweight title. Nate Diaz is turning down UFC offers left and right, plus a back and forth on Twitter with Holloway and Woodley is fishing for a big pay-per-view fight. All of them are potential fights for Connor, and still no word from him or the UFC. What is your take on all of this? Well, Man, that is a that's a great question. I have not thought of it in those terms on all of this. My I have a few thoughts, I guess. Uh first of all, the Pacquiao stuff. I mean, I cannot possibly fathom. I mean, I guess I can if you're a low information donk. And, you know, it's like I would pay behind a paywall to watch Conor McGregor fold the laundry or here's Conor picking up milk at the grocery store or, hey, here's Conor watching TV. You can just watch him watch, you know. Unless you're that kind of a fan, it is hard to me, it is very hard for me to understand what on earth could possibly be the appeal of watching a Pacquiao contest. I mean, that seems, that seems completely insane, right? I mean, Manny Pacquiao is, let's be clear about this, affirmatively far past his prime, not even close to the fighter he was when he was, you know, touching up, let's say De La Hoya or something um, or Hatton, right? When he flatlined Hatton um, is desperate at this point, you know, loses to Jeff Horn. And I agree he shouldn't have lost to Horn, but he did. Um, is I mean Connor's weird because he brings out the best in certain guys and he brings out the desperate in others, you know. De La Hoya, oh, I'm training, I could beat Connor in two rounds. Jesus, Oscar, really? You sound sad. You sound sad. And then and then you've got uh Pacquiao being like, Oh yeah, you know, we're gonna have talks. It's like, oh my god, dude, really? What are y'all doing? What are y'all doing? You're just trying to fleece rubes. Is what you're trying to do. You're trying to get money from people for bad boxing. I mean, who on earth wants to see that? Who on earth would want to see? I mean, there are people, I, I would imagine it would do some kind of sales um, based on star power, but that is such a, uh, God, ignoble way to go through your athletic career, especially when you're Pacquiao and you're an all-time great, you know? Ugh, it's like stomach turning, quite literally, and it's pathetic. For him to be trying to do this, and I, I know I've, as a as a competitor, I really appreciate what Pacquiao has done in the last ten years. But my God, what a left turn that would be! I find that whole thing truly pathetic on the part of of Manny Pacquiao. To be absolutely clear about that, um, you know, and, and look, 
if Connor's doing it as a leveraging thing, or if Connor's even not even involved, it's a separate story. If he's doing it for just leverage, then you know whatever. I guess you can't really fault him. But um, I find the Pacquiao thing like grotesque and awful. Now you're asking about the larger issue here. GSP comes in, turns right around. Diaz, I'm off to boxing. Holloway's out there competing. I wouldn't put the Holloway stuff in there. I think Holloway is one of the guys who is doing his job. You know, showing up, taking on contenders. Not complaining when there's late switches, what Connor used to do, and then going out there and beating them handily. Um, so I'll, I don't, I wouldn't really group him as part of that. But here's just basically what I would say. I think it's just, I, and I talked about this. I think on this chat either a week or two ago. We are not having near every talk about the UFC TV deal is fundamentally skewed and not talking about the more substantive issue. Well, not the more substantive, but a substantive issue at play which is however much they're going to get, and they need apparently 450 mil a year to offset that debt load, which good luck with that. They're not going to get it. But whatever en ends up happening with that, however great the number is, and in fact, however greater that number is, is only going to exacerbate all of the problems that we have now, or at least could conceivably be a major risk factor, right? Because after the sale, people were like, that's a lot of money that I am not entitled to that I think I should be. And you have this malaise setting in. Partly it was also an ownership and culture change that happened overnight, but that's a big component of it. Now you're going to double down on that? Let's say you do get 300 mil. That means fighters are going to recognize. So let's say it's a five-year deal, right? It's a five-year deal, and the it's going to be, let's say, 300 mil a year, right? And the fighters are going to realize they're not going to get half of that. So how much is half of that? 150, 300, 450. 600, 750 mil, 750 mil over five years that you would be entitled to, right? If I got the numbers right, yes, I think I did, right? 750 million over five years that, that could go to the fighters. Do you know how rich that would make them? And they're not going to get a penny of it. And that's if the UFC falls short of what they're looking for. If they got the 450, can you even just half of that would be 450 for let's even, a, let's say, okay. So let's say it's a um, a three year deal, F just two year deal to make the math simple. Be nine hundred million, nine hundred million. You get half of that four fifty, four hundred fifty million over let's say six hundred fighters. They're not going to get a penny of that. They're not going to get a penny of that. Do you not think that this is going to exacerbate current problems to an extraordinary degree? I am not Nostradamus. I cannot make any bold proclamation that this will happen. But that seems like a huge, huge risk factor for significantly exacerbated tensions. It honestly would not surprise me. And again, I make no predictions about this. I'm merely just sort of thinking about some more likely possibilities, certainly some probabilities. But to me, if they sign a deal for $300 million and it begins to dawn on the fighters that they're losing out on $150 million a year, um, based on what other athletes get according to other CBAs and other leagues, which, again, I know are different, but still. Uh, that could be the end for Dana White, to be quite honest, because he has become quite toxic uh, after the sale as almost an avatar of, um, you know, corporate greed or putting uh, corporate interests over fighter interests. That could just take it over the top. So that would be not great for him if that – came to pass. And moreover, what you're talking about with Diaz turning down everything and all these guys wanting these super fights and whatnot, 
partly it's a function of the fact that they've never had leverage before. So when they get it, they want to abuse the power to an extent. And can you blame them? If you've never had leverage and all of a sudden you've got it, you're going to want to hold on to that like it's, you know, like it's your lifeline. And then you've got Diaz being like, you know, I'm just going to go do boxing. And I can respect that. I understand he's just trying to maximize his wealth. But how on earth does that service you, the consumer? What services you? And I've been saying this for a while now. When Nate, uh, when I was on vacation in like uh, March or so, I distinctly recall saying what appears to me is that the relationship between the fighters and ownership, with exceptions here or there, is basically broken. And they need a new arrangement. The old arrangement worked because one power side had such leverage over the other that there was this compliance at scale. Now there is not nearly as much compliance at scale if, you know, I wouldn't call it outright rebellion, but uh, whatever that arrangement was that held the machine together and made the product move forward and, and made fights happen on a more routine order. Uh, granted, fewer cards, fewer fighters, so there was a bit more of a scarcity there, but Nevertheless, there was an order that was established. That order has come unglued, and there are all kinds of consequences from it. And that's part of my issue with the GSP part, is that as that order has come unglued, all these other satellite decisions are being made around it as a consequence that exacerbate the initial existing problem. If I was the UFC, I don't know exactly how I would handle this, but I am praying, praying, praying that some kind of new order can be created some kind of mutually agreed upon arrangement between the fighters and between management that everyone knows exactly we're on the same page we know what we're entitled to we know what we're entitled to we know our responsibility we know our responsibility and it creates a more orderly product because in the end when Nate Diaz is not competing who wins it ain't me and it ain't you you know when Tyron Woodley is asking for I mean he's taking on the top contenders I think Tyron Woodley is a little bit unfairly maligned but you know when GSP comes in there and has a great night and then walks, long-term, there's a question to be asked about who's the winner there. Short-term, all of us. Long-term, maybe none of us. This is a problem. This is a significant, significant problem. Lawler versus RDA. There's a big fight in the welterweight division this weekend. Who do you think will win? This is a tough one. This is a tough one, man. Part of me feels like I'm not totally sold on RDA and welterweight. Part of me feels like I feel like that's a, a naive thing to say. Part of me feels like I'm still not convinced that the guy who's taken the most significant strikes, maybe it was in welterweight history or even in UFC history or something, has you know has no shop worn effect. Um, another part of me feels like, well, didn't he answer that with Cowboy? There's a lot of uncertainty with this one. There's a bit of uh, lack of clarity, which is why the fight is so great. I love lack of clarity that is clarified through the fights. Um, how do you see the rest of the welterweight title picture? Woodley wants a big pay-per-view name. GSP vacates. Well, GSP just put him off. Forget about Nate Diaz. Covington's out there barking up the tree. I don't think he'll get it next. What should be next? We'll see what happens with Ponzinibbio and... Um, and... Uh, who's he fighting? Ponzinibbio and Perry. Let's see what happens with... Um, Usman. He's out there. He's still behind, though. Let's see what happens with Darren Till. I think I think Darren Till needs a big contender, and then the winner of that might get it. It's going to be hard to see Colby Covington getting it, but uh, for now, anyway. But um, there's just some other fights that have to play out. Oh, and then Condit versus Magny. Neither of those, to me, are title contenders. I mean, maybe if Condit gets it, that there's a possibility there. But short of that, no. Kane is back, but what Kane? <laughs> 
and what's next? Good question. We have an exciting heavyweight title matchup, and now Kane is back in the gym. If everything goes according to plan, he will be back in the octagon in 2018. 35 years old is not old for heavyweight, but he has a lot of miles on him. He has a young man's fighting style, and the injuries must have had a huge impact. Do you think he will get back to where he was if he was ready to go? Let's say May, June, July. Who should he fight? Title shot right away, tune-up, or maybe a rematch with Verdum versus JDF. I would like to see a tune-up just to see where he is. I actually do have some hope for him. I actually do have hope for him, and I'll tell you why. As you mentioned, 35 is not old for heavyweight, but he does have a fair amount of miles on him. But here's the thing. You saw this with Habib, and you see it all the time with other fighters. or just You see even with ordinary people who are going through physical suffering. It warps your decision-making. If you're in the middle of some kind of discomfort where your body's not working properly and it's causing you pain, you begin to think things like, I can't do this anymore. This is the end, not so much of your life, but if you're an athlete, if your career, this is the end of certain forms of even quality of life. All of these things that I took for granted, they're basically now gone. That, that could be a real thing. And then when you get healed, your mind begins to push out those thoughts. You're like, okay, that was how I felt in the middle of a storm. Remember when Habib had that broken rib? He was like, ah, I might be done. Dude, you break your rib, man. It'll break you down to the ground. The, depending on, on the nature of the break and where it is. It is, I mean, it's hard to, you know, breathe. Um, but when he got on the other side of it, you know, the more rational side begins to take over. I think he was probably doing a lot of soul searching in the middle of terrible injuries and terrible quality of life problems. And that can really affect you. And if he's taken a lot of time off, he's taken a lot of time off to heal and just feel better, I think that can be restorative. You already know his talent. He has not been overly active all this time, although, of course, through injuries. But what I'm saying is if he's properly healed them, they're never 100%, but if you're properly healed them and you've got your mind right and you're refreshed and you've stepped away from competition and you still have that fire, those can often be a really great set of ingredients for success. Now, in the end, is he the best heavyweight in the world? There's just no way to know, not anymore. Uh, until he gets out there and competes. But I will say, while it has been unbelievably frustrating to watch Lowe these many years and months lost from injuries and everything else and surgeries, and what he hasn't competed since Travis Brown at UFC 200, I think that that time off, if he's really fully healed um, and on the other side of it and rejuvenated, I think he might be able to make some noise. Because I do think he's got a style where he can take down anybody. I think he can take a shot. And his cardio it probably is good enough where even if it's not as good as it once was, it's still going to be marked. I mean, his cardio advantage over other heavyweights was, you know, formerly beyond description. You just didn't know heavyweights who had cardio like that. So even if it's not what it once was, it's probably still better than everybody else's. Um, so, you know, I'm saying this from a degree of cautious optimism. I'm not saying this from a degree of, you know... Um, I'm not guaranteeing you that this will all go great, but I guess what I'm saying is I, I am more hopeful about this than others. And in terms of who he would fight, you know, I don't know. Um, who, let's see what the picture looks like, you know, when we get up there. So, How good do you think Lomachenko can be? I think he can be pound for pound best depending on how things go. 
you know, I talked to someone's like, did you see the fight? Talked about it extensively on my personal YouTube channel, as well as on the Monday morning analyst. Um, yeah. How good do I think he can be? He, I've never seen talent like that before in boxing. I've never, I've never, ever seen that. I've never seen a guy who can do stuff like that so easily. He has taken all of like the difficult portions of the game. And I made this, I've made this point before. Like if you're an Android, Imagine an Android. This is an incoherent concept because in the end, there's no such thing as perfect. But imagine you could have an Android that in every scenario would do the perfect thing, the perfect technique, the perfect evasion or whatever, whatever the perfect answer was there. That's what he does. You know, he just does it perfectly uh, or near perfectly anyway. Um, you know, how far can he go? I don't know. But I don't know how you can look at that and not just be gobsmacked. Most violent fighters in the UFC candidates: Alvarez, Gaethje, Lawler, Nate Diaz. Um, I don't know if I'd put Nate Diaz above someone like Barboza. Uh, Nganu, sure. Brown, yep. Platinum Mike Perry, of course. Cyborg. Who are some other really violent fighters? Uh, like I mentioned, um, I would say on occasion. Who else is like a really violent guy? On occasion, um, who's the dirty bird, skinny guy? My, my my memory is quite poor. Um, he's good. Who else is good? Uh, super violent. I'm trying to think here. Overham can be violent at times. John Jones can be violent at times. Man, was John Jones's grounded pound was like oof. Um, trying to think here at a welterweight. Who's like a super violent guy? Mike Perry is super violent. Condit at times was violent. Um, at lightweight, you got a bunch of guys already. Yeah, just you've got a good list here, but it can definitely be expanded. Well, let's see. Somebody says Josh Near in there, the dentist. Josh Near has always had the greatest MMA nickname ever, the dentist. God, I love that nickname. I I think it's just just the most badass thing I've ever seen. Joe Riggs used to have. You know, if I bring up Joe Riggs now, you're like Joe Riggs, really? Joe Riggs used to have – go look at the Joe Riggs. Uh, he knocks out Kendall Grove with elbows from guard. Cold. Joe Riggs used to have savage, savage ground and pound. He used to be incredible with that. Go check him out. Um, Javel Dos Anjos's body kicks are some of the most violent things I've ever seen. He can just fold people with those jokers. Those are pretty great. Um, who else is, like, really violent? I'm trying to think. Just look at Jordan Breen's all-violence team. Paul Daly's violent, you know. Speaking of which, violence in MMA, how far is too far? In the aftermath of that brutal MVP flying knee KO of Cyborg Evangelista, there's another one, I remember you saying uh, you reflected on how far we can go in the sanctioning of violence in MMA. You kind of touched on it again after Nganu's KO of Overeem. You basically said if those kinds of KOs happen regularly, it would be problematic to sanction it. Well, not so much with that one, but... It just reminded me of that. Now it seems like it's at least one bad KO for each event. Recently, we had Nganu versus Overeem, uh, Moraes versus Sterling. That was a vicious KO. Good lord. Uh, Felder versus Oliveira, Ramos or Hamosh versus Zahabi. No, yeah, Hamosh. Oh, I forget that kid's name. Uh, how often would be too often? As fighters get better and better, do we need to adjust the regulations, gloves accordingly? How do you see the balance between the nasty KOs and violence we have love in MMA and having a sport you can watch with good conscience? 
doesn't affect my conscience at all. I know people are like, oh, I have trouble watching this in good conscience. I never do. <laughs> I mean, unless it's a mismatch or something, you know, like a real mismatch. I don't mean like one guy's better than another guy. I mean, like one person has no business being in a cage with somebody else, which is fairly rare, to be honest. Uh, I know people always say that, man, this is, I don't know if I, this, I'm morally troubled. I'm never morally troubled by watching any of this. And maybe that's just me. I maybe I've got I've got. Um, it's not to say that I don't have sympathy for guys who lose, both in the sense of I feel bad that they, they've suffered defeat in their lives. That must be so incredibly difficult. I feel I, I feel true heartfelt sorrow for them. And of course, you know when they had that vicious knockout of Sterling, you don't want to see a guy look like that, you know. So I have I have I have worry and concern for them in that respect. But I never ever feel morally troubled by it, ever. Like it never. Again, unless it's like a, a severe mismatch or somebody's doing something that where it's a real, you know, like that data 5,000. Like we laughed after the fact and then we looked at what the results were and I was like, that that was a little too close to, to, to the line. Maybe stuff like that, but, you know, the, the knockout of Zahabi um, um, by Ayman Zahabi, I didn't, I didn't feel morally troubled by that. I think these guys are adults. This is regulated. They know what risks they're in for. Um They've had to go through, in many cases, and one of certainly of Ayman Zahabi, they had to go through a lifetime of training. Um, there is medical supervision. There's a third man to referee. Um, if people want to be violent with each other under those circumstances, I have no issue with it. And again, you're asking what the limits are. The limits are what we mutually agree upon. You're asking, like, you know, what would be the best policy for fighters and um, anti-doping? It's the one that where the fighters had a say. I, I mean, just think about it logically. Well, the fighters might not want the most stringent anti-doping. Yeah, good. Good. Here, here's, the, here's the reality. These are the guys who are putting it on the line. These are the ones who, um, who have to bear all the costs of their decisions. Not you. They do. So them having a say over this, if not a complete say, certainly let's say a significant say, seems to me an entirely appropriate voice to to include. Now, in addition to these ones, you'd want to have medical, um, as I mentioned, not merely, merely medical supervision, but medical input into what is uh, allowed, uh, what we don't allow, what seems reasonably safe, what seems not so reasonably safe. Um, and then we make adjustments from there. And I think that's what we've done. We started with a sort of a basic skeleton framework over time of what we didn't want to allow. So the, the 2001 rules that Larry Hazard introduced in New Jersey, the unified rules, and we've built and adjusted from there with constant input, again, from uh, regulatory uh, officials, from medical supervision, from larger body of scientific data, um, uh, from fighter input. Um, but I, I see that process as imperfect, but suitable. Um, it is like, you know, people think that uh, you know, sort of, there's this constant question about science itself and the scientific method where there is this not merely a constant revision, but in many cases, this upending of common understanding of our world where, you know, well, science is always wrong. It's, it's, it's wrong on purpose. Uh, well, not, not, not in that sense, but it is self-correcting on purpose. It establishes that whatever we have is a conditional understanding of our universe that was better than the previous conditional understanding that was better than the previous conditional understanding. But all we're really entitled to is conditional understanding. That's all we can really ask for. 
Um, you cannot have some kind of perfect knowledge, even if such a thing ever existed. It certainly wouldn't be accessible, not in the way that we'd hoped. All you can really hope for is conditional understanding. And with that, you know, you're using the best available techniques and methods to derive at knowledge, and you're using the best methods and techniques to um, establish a process of self-revision. But that's really all you can do. I like that, what we have. I mean, I, I bag on commissions a lot because these are utterly compromised organizations when it comes to conflict of interest with revenue generation. But they do serve, at their core, a really valuable function. The Association of Boxing Commissions, at its core, really does serve a valuable function. These debates that we have, uh, as U.S. fans, us as media, us together, these are valuable forms of dialogue that we have that go towards getting a better understanding of things. So I think that the current set is probably good. It could be amended uh, over time based on how, look, if there's so many knockouts every single time or begin to ask ourselves, maybe there should be bigger gloves or maybe there should be a change in the rules, then let's have that. But for now, I don't think we've crossed or we reached some point where the, anything is pa uh, failing the smell test. Um, I like what we have. And I don't feel bad about watching MMA ever, unless it's the aforementioned sort of small carve-out. And I don't think, I, I know, I see all my fellow media brethren being like, this sport, it's the lowest of the low. It's the, you know, it may, oh my God, it makes me sick. That make me sick. <laughs> and maybe I'm that, maybe that makes me sick, that it doesn't make me sick, but it doesn't make me sick. I think we love violence as a people. I think we love violence as a species. I think violence in the animal kingdom uh, I, I've always tried to tell this to people. I, people ask me, you know, is MMA a sport? I think if you put enough rules and regulations and best practices on something, uh, it almost becomes a sport. But at my core, do I fundamentally believe that MMA is a sport? I really don't. And the reason why is because um, fighting is something that happens naturally in the animal kingdom anyway, either for mating rights or for territory rights or for other some kind of dispute uh, among members of a species typically of the same gender, right? We have taken that because we do that too. We have taken that and we have put rules around it. We have put supervision over it. We have put athleticism into it. We have put guidelines in some ways strict and and we have put it turned into a for-profit enterprise. But at its core, baseball is not something that naturally occurs in the real world. Football is not anything that naturally occurs. And there, there's no other, um, in boxing is sort of a different form of the same thing, I suppose, as MMA. So again, if you put enough trimmings on it, I suppose eventually it just sort of morphs into a sport. But at its essence, what we're doing here is satisfying the call to violence. Uh, I don't feel bad about that. I really, really don't. Uh, if there wasn't enough supervision, then I would. Um, or if there was something, something fundamentally missing here, I would. But I think for the most part, for the most part, we get it right. Let's do it. All in favor of it. You know. Rafael Carvalho seems cr criminally underrated at this point. He has won 15 in a row in his last 55 fights. Alessio Sakara, KO. Milvamanov, KO. Milvamanov, decision. Worst fight ever. Brandon Halsey, TKO. Joe Schilling, decision. Well, the Sch Schilling fight, he wrestled him. The Halsey fight was nice. He did stop him with a sh shot to the gut. Milvamanov, decision. Arguably the worst fight I've ever seen, and that should have gone to Melvin anyway. The Melvin Manoff KO was really nice, actually. And then the Alessio Sakara KO. He is nowhere to be seen on any rankings. He beats Musasi badly. You heard it here. Okay. If you say so. Jesus, this question is like 50 miles long. 
Let me go a different direction here. SureDog Radio going away. Luke, I recently discovered that TJ DeSantis announced that the SureDog Radio Network was going away and the general future of their business was not certain. Seeing that SureDog used to be a major player in the MMA media game, do you see this as a change in the times as video content is essential to survive for many platforms? Or is this a combination of less interest in MMA outside of giant stars like McGregor? I think it's a much more simple answer. I think the guys who purchased SureDog, um, I, I think it's either Evolve or Crave Media, have done just an incredibly poor job of managing it. And they did all the things they needed to to gut it. Uh, let me say something about SureDog. We don't really talk about this in the media very often because it's a little bit uncomfortable. A few things need to be mentioned. There are still some very talented people at SureDog that deserve some praise. Jordan Breen being one of them. I believe Mike Fridley is still there. And they're doing the best they can with what they have, I think, in a difficult circumstance. And that should be honored. Todd Martin also writes there. I think Todd has a lot of really smart, observant, sometimes iconoclastic takes. And... Um, and, and that, that should be recognized. We don't want to th think of it as some like emptied out husk where there's nothing left. There's a lot left there that's worthy of being praised. And those guys, and to the extent there's any ladies there that I'm not aware of, deserve it. Number one. Number two, it is bad for MMA that this has happened to Sherdog. You don't want to see a major player like this compromised because MMA has, yes, experienced some decline, but on top of that, it has been so poorly managed by that ownership that you have this current situation where the owner was let go, then the other guy who was in charge, um, they let go of their lead photographer and videographer who was incredibly talented, experienced guy. I mean, letting go of experienced staff to do things. Um, it, it's just, it's, a, it's such a waste. I mean, the Sherdog used to be, uh, for a time, I got to write some op-eds for them back in the day. Thanks, Big thanks, by the way, to Jordan Breen. Um, and, um, and I always, I always was not merely honored to do it, but excited for the opportunity. And it would do, you can't imagine how big it was back in the day. And again, I don't want to say it's some kind of small site. Those forums still carry a lot of traffic. The fight finder obviously will keep it afloat, but, um, you know, to me, the answer is that the parent company has not taken, uh, seriously what they have in that they didn't prop, they didn't treat it properly. And it's become what it's become as a consequence. Uh, but that's not good for MMA. You know, when a media institution like that is compromised over time, even if it's self-inflicted by the ownership company, it, who, who wins? It's not you, and it's not me. And it sure as hell isn't the sport. Um, so that's bad. That's a bad thing. And whether it's a harbinger, you know, look, media is so uncertain in this time, nobody is safe. But... Um, but I've been very disheartened to see how that parent company has treated what used to be, you know, the, and in some ways can still be, but what used to be the gold standard in, in MMA media. So always remember that it's not those guys' fault, and it's not MMA's fault necessarily all that much. It's much more a question of, uh, in my judgment, of uh, what the parent company has done, and that they've done a shameful job. All right, let's go to Twitter and see what you guys have to say. You can use the hashtag chat wrappers if you want. Uh, and you can um, chat me or uh, tweet me at L Thomas News. All right, true or false? Cyborg stops home. I'm gonna say true. Ozdemir knocks Cormier out. I've been wrong about Ozdemir every single time, so I'm gonna say probably not. But I've been wrong about him every single time. So, and Gnu stops Miocic. Ooh, I don't know. I'll say false, but or true. But I honest to God, I don't know. GSP never fights again in the UFC. True. Philadelphia Eagles win the Super Bowl. Well, if they had Carson Wentz, they might have. But now they're just 
trash. Who's who's your quarterback again? Nick Foles. Good luck, Philly. You could say, well, Luke, you're just bitter because the skins blow this year, which would be true. I am bitter, and they do blow. But Eagles aren't, ain't winning without Carson Wentz. What is GSP's next move? Fighting Woodley at welterweight isn't very intriguing. I think it is. Taking on Cormier at light heavyweight is silly, and dropping down to contend for the 155 belt seems a stretch. The bounds of credulity as well. So what does he do now? Probably McGregor at 170. So at some point, if he does come back, makes a big old fat paycheck. Beyond that, I couldn't really tell you. Colby is doing everything he can to be the bad guy, but Woodley will still be the one to get booed when they fight because the GSP and DS fights he is chasing could create instability. And that seems to be the thing that angers fans the most. Do you agree? It depends how Woodley plays it. If Woodley takes it and really tries to play up how he's the good guy and Colby's the bad, which Colby is all too happy to do, then no, I wouldn't agree. But if there's some hemming and hawing about things where, you know, as soon as he gets it, I'm not fighting number one contender. I mean, he did end up doing it, but there are just certain media messages and plays you can make to really turn people off. But if he goes the other way, then no, it's not, it's not, it's not, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, it's not written in stone. Yeah. I think this person's just trolling me, but what Michael Phelps did was very impressive, but I don't think we can consider him the greatest Olympian because he never had to consider biking or running like triathletes. I've gone into this topic at length. You know, I've said this before after watching Lomachenko versus Rigondeaux. In my opinion, which is all that it is, Lomachenko is the most talented combat athlete in the sports in sports today. Um, that's certainly debatable. There's a lot of different ways you can go on that one. You could say Demetrius Johnson. You could pick somebody in amateur wrestling or whatever you – somebody in judo, Teddy Reiner in judo or something. But you could pick whatever you wanted. But uh, in my judgment, it's Lomachenko. But that's just opinion. But there's a lot of people being like, well, he doesn't have to account for um, kicks and punches – or I'll go punches, yes, but no kicks in jiu-jitsu. And I made this point. I'll make it one more time very quickly. You'll recall uh, Coach John Cavanaugh, when he was talking about the lead-up to the Mayweather-McGregor fight, was saying something kind of similar, namely that you know it's it's going to be great because we don't have to deal with, let's say, wrestling or jiu-jitsu or even kickboxing when we deal with Mayweather, which is all true, except it's addition by subtraction. As you cut out those other things, number one, you're going into a world where these guys have extraordinary, significantly higher for that world subject matter expertise, and you're establishing a new set of conditions for combat that don't exist in the sport you're coming from. So the aid is a learning curve for new situations, and you're dealing with a higher level of subject mastery. And there's more to the story than that. Anytime you have a sport where there is a, a significantly higher worldwide participatory rate, where there is state uh, sponsorship of the sport to produce the best athletes, and they get them very, very young, and there's decades of best practices, you're simply going to have a higher level of te technical mastery than even one you can appreciate. Consider this. Dr. Mike Isratel has talked about this at length. There's something called, this is why people are like, oh, there's no such thing as overtraining. Yes, there is. We'll have very, very different thresholds for what that can be, but it absolutely exists. There's a concept known as MRV, maximum recoverable volume. What is the total amount of technical proficiency and essentially body degradation through training is you can put yourself through and still recover enough to to sustain continued improvement. Then everyone's going to have a different variety of uh, numbers based on all different set of factors, the training itself, your genetics, your diet, your sleep, whatever. But MRV is a real thing. Consider this. To presume that boxing is easier as a sport to succeed in than MMA, what you have to assume is they're essentially lazy. Because what you're getting out of both is MRV, 
both are going to, to achieve at the highest level, both are going to put in the maximum amount of work they can do to improve their technical proficiency and, of course, their overall you know, uh, general fitness and whatever else that they need to compete. They're both going to put in the exact same amount of work. On the MMA side, they're going to spread it over many different things. In boxing, they're going to go on one thing, just boxing. And again, strength and conditioning or whatever else, but boxing. It's not less of an effort. It's an identical amount of effort, an identical amount of the maximum recoverable volume work to get somewhere. They're just dispersing it differently. So if they're doing that in one direction, they're getting people when they're literally pre-adolescence and they're doing it in countries where they're raised to be this, we are dealing with a subject level mastery that is extraordinarily higher than it is here in any one dimension. Together as an amalgam, it's the, it's a high level, right? It's the highest level if you're a UFC or something, but it's the same. They're both pushing to the end. They're just, dis one's dispersing it over five different workloads. One is dispersing it over one or two workloads. Well, what do you think is going to happen? It is, you can debate who the best is. You think it's Demetrius Johnson? I, hey, I couldn't really argue with you too much. It's just my opinion about Lomachenko. What is not up for debate is that boxing is easier than MMA. It is not. It is not. Not to succeed in and not to reach the level of technical mastery of someone like Lomachenko. They're still putting in, and in fact, since they get them at a young age, even more work through up to MRV every time. So if you've got six people in each group and they're both doing the exact same amount of work, sleeping the same, dieting the same, but one's training for one discipline and the other one's training for three disciplines, they're going to get really far but one is going to have to share that across three. One is going to be able to dig into one. So the technical mastery is going to be higher. When, when, it, when, in, when a UFC champion drops his title and makes an Olympic team, let me know in wrestling. Let me know. Let me know when they make a world team. Uh, hell, let me know when they win a, when they win a title in the black belt and in the gi. Let me know when that happens. Um, you know, let me know when they win... Some kind of and, and and kickboxing does not have a very high worldwide participatory rate relative to those other sports. But let me know when they win a kickbox. I mean, Alistair Overeem did, but he's maybe the only one, and he had an original. He had a lot of uh, experience in kickboxing before that, so you just don't see a lot of it. And he had to take two years off. So just consider that. I mean, and the amount of people doing kickboxing is infinitesimally smaller than wrestling or boxing. Way, 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 way smaller. Anyway. In terms of violent fighters, don't discount Prime Joe Lazan. Good one. For proof, visit his stoppages of Kurt Warburton. That was good. Gabe Rudiger, he crushed Gabe and Jens Pulver. That's true. The Kurt Warburton, he had a Kimura from Triangle, if I recall. Had him in a triangle and then still locked up a Kimura from there. That's nasty. Uh, Mark Hunt is clear to fight. What new medical test did he have to pass or was it arbitrary? I don't know. Who wins? Today's Lomachenko or Prime Floyd? Tough to say. Maybe Lomachenko. I don't know. I don't know, but probably Lomachenko. I don't know. He's. I've never seen him do the things he kind of does. Who wins? Shields or Askren in sub-grappling contest? 
Shields has a more decorated background in sub grappling, but I would love to see it. Because Shields would have to work underneath. Probably Shields, but I don't know. Ben is sneaky tough. I would lean Shields. If Lawler defeats RDA, is anyone more deserving of a welterweight title shot? No. He would probably get it. Do fighters have to pay a percentage of the bonuses like fire the night to their coaches, etc.? Typically, yes. Typically, the coach will make like, you know, three, five, 10% of their earnings. 10's a little high. I've heard three to five is pretty common. But yeah, they get, I mean, maybe not. I mean, it depends on the arrangement of the coaches. It's not written into law. It's whatever that they, you know, but it's it's like, it's usually like a function of what your overall earnings are. They get a, they get a cut of that. What is happening with John Jones? I'm trying to find out. Worst three gym exercises for injury. Ooh, sissy squats. Um, bench with the elbows flared. That's how, oh, a decline bench. So I'll say decline bench. Um, that's how I tore my labrum. Sissy squats. And what's another one where I see donkeys just absolutely tearing their bodies to shreds? Um, pull-ups, no. I mean, you could say deadlifts too because they're done so incorrectly. Um, so I'll say deadlifts, but the deadlifts are actually also really, really good. It's just that, you know, so many donks just getting there and grip and rip. I don't believe in grip and ripping. I know Larry Wheels does it. I know a lot of guys believe in grip and ripping. I do not. Grip and ripping is when you see a lot of people who just like, they go up to the bar, they go... <gasps> They grab the bar, they just yank. You know, I don't really believe in that. If it works for them, it works for them. But I think generally speaking, you have to create upper body and lower body back tightness. And I think you have to have proper bracing with your breathing. And I don't think you can really do that gripping and ripping. How do you see the fight between TJ and DJ going? Impossible to connect with that one because you just don't know what TJ is going to look like. But assuming he looks like himself at 135, I would bet on TJ to win. Strikes to the back of the head. Should referees give more leeway to a fighter trying to secure the finish when his opponent is hurt or do uh, or do more to protect the fighter against illegal strikes when they're the most vulnerable? They do the best they can. There's a picture here. Who is this? Oh, yeah, this is uh, Alvarez and Gaethje. Alvarez wasn't intending to. He had a hammer fist, and he was trying to come down, and then Gaethje kind of turned, and so it hit him right in the back of the head. I don't really know what you do about that. I mean, yes, that we need to find a way to fix that. Um but the referee just has to be very, very clear about that. Like once this is happening, you've got to go to the side of the head, side of the head, side of the head. And you know, even then, only the side of the head that you can legally strike. That's a tough problem to solve because it's it's happening in real time. And um, it's just hard to control. And you don't want to take away a win from a guy who's that close by stopping it and taking a point and restarting them. Plus, that wouldn't be good for the guy who's getting banged on. That's an area where we could improve um, how we handle that. And what the, what the solutions are in the short term is not obvious to me. All right, it's about 2.30, so that means it's time for me to check out. I appreciate you guys watching. Like the video, subscribe to MMA Fighting below. Stick around because we're going to have a beat tomorrow. Like I said before, Esther and Casey are up in Winnipeg. We're going to have tons of coverage of UFC on Fox 26. So thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. Appreciate the chair. It's really nice. You guys are the best. Until next time, you know what to do. Stay frosty.